Chapter 10 of An Earthman on Venus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by M. Bradley Peters. Chapter 10 of An Earthman on Venus by Ralph Milne Farley. Before Queen Formus. And so, while my princess was borne northward by her cousin and lover, Prince Yuri, I was led southward in chains, a prisoner charged with high treason against the Ant Empire. Yuri had tricked me, and had used me as a cat's paw to rescue his sweetheart from her captors. But if I had not been so blindly in love, I should have seen through him, and I could have married Lilla at peace under Formian auspices. Yet somehow, I did not feel sorry for what I had done. I had set Lilla free. I had won her love and trust for one night, and I was prepared to pay the penalty. In fact, I was glad to pay the penalty, for I realized that marriage between her, a princess, and me, a commoner, would of course never have been possible. Back in my old room again in Watusa, it seemed like home, somehow. And yet, how different from before, for now I was no longer a guest, but a prisoner. Tabby, my pet buntloat, was glad to smell me again, and my conscience gave me a twinge for having so unceremoniously left her behind. Yet, if I had taken her with me, what would have become of her in the wreck of the Kirkwall and the flight through the spider's tunnel? Doggo was overwhelmed with grief at the jam I was in, and he was reproachful too. Why did you do it? He would ask again and again, and in spite of my repeated and detailed explanations, would reiterate, why did you do it, when all was going so well here? Gods were placed over me again, as on my first arrival on the planet, but this time instead of being high-ranking officers such as Doggo, they were mere common soldier ants who jested coarsely at me and without sympathy. I complained to Doggo and he promptly put a stop to their tormenting, and when they found out that I was still in the good graces of one of their eclats, they became on the surface quite deferential although they continued to annoy me in many petty and underhanded ways. Doggo spent a great deal of time with me, and kept me posted on the latest news from Kuana, the capital of Kupia. In fact, he even dispatched one of his barputas to ascertain for me just how the princess fared. Report had it that the princess was almost constantly in the company of Prince Yuri, and that he was held as a popular hero for having rescued her. That she seemed unaccountably sad, which item cheered me that the king was momentarily expected to announce her betrothal to Prince Yuri, which item did not cheer me. That an influential faction, headed by Prince Toron, insisted upon an explanation being demanded from Queen Formis because of the detention of Princess Lilla by the Ant-Men, and that only the new popularity of Prince Yuri was able to control the movement of his younger brother. Oh, what a fool I had been not to have told Lilla that Yuri had been responsible for her imprisonment at Watusa. Now, of course, she believed him a hero rather than the scoundrel he was. But how could he satisfactorily explain his repudiation of me? No. If she retained the slightest friendly feeling for me, she could not regard him as anything other than a double-crossing crook. And did not the report state that she seemed sad? Why else than either because of my fate, or because she did not look forward with pleasure to a union with Yuri? But if the latter, then why did she associate with him? It must be that he was holding over her head a threat of some sort. My poor princess of the butterfly wings and graceful antenna. 
I tried to get a word to her, but Doggo informed me that criminals were not allowed the privilege of letter writing. My interest was so centered in the beautiful Lilla that it never occurred to me to inquire as to my own fate. But Doggo insisted on bringing it to my attention. He had obtained his own assignment as my defense counsel, and so it was up to him to discuss with me the coming trial. I was accused of high treason against the Empire, and that I had assisted in the escape of a Cupian slave, had uttered a forged pass, had obstructed the highway, had nearly run down a penguin, and had, presumably, slandered the Formians to a member of the royal house of Cupia. Doggo said that I clearly had no defense, as all the items except the slander were easily provable, but that he should attempt to argue that the accusations were void for inconsistency, due to the fact that the same person was described in them as being both a slave and royalty. So far as I was concerned, this line of defense seemed absolute bunk, but no more so than any equally silly-sounding legal rules on earth. The trial was to take place at the Imperial City, before Queen Formis and the Council of Twelve, for apparently I had committed a most important and serious crime. In case of conviction, which seemed certain, Her Majesty would have the choice of two punishments. First, laying eggs in me, or secondly, casting me into the Valley of the Howling Rocks. Both sounded very interesting and were reserved for the worst criminals. All of the Ant-Men of the entire nation of Formia are raised from eggs laid by the ruling monarch. The vocation of any given Ant-Man is determined long before he is hatched, or even before his egg is laid. From an elaborate system of records kept in the Imperial Council, the Council of Twelve is able to determine, as to each batch of eggs, whether it should produce professors, farmers, laborers, officers, soldiers, servants, or what, and the eggs are accordingly laid in the appropriate food. Sort of, tell me what you eat, and I will tell you what you are. The young ants, when fully grown and in the cocoon stage, are transported by truckloads to the part of the empire where they are to be trained and where their life is to be spent. Thus the pupae for soldiers and officers are sent to Watusa, for instance. Not only is occupation determined in advance, but so also, to a large extent, is sex. Thus, only enough males are produced to supply the queen's harem the rest of the royal offspring being sexless females. Whenever a queen dies, the council immediately chooses several likely larvae and changes their food so as to produce fully developed females, the first of these to reach maturity being queen, and the rest being killed. The food chosen for the production of the higher classes of ant-men consists of condemned criminals. This was where I came in. At this point in the explanation, an idea occurred to me. Do you really mean to say, Doggo? I gasped. That you are a lady and not a man? That the whole nation of Formians are females? Yes, he replied. And furthermore, the more highly developed of us occasionally lay eggs. Though, of course, we never try to hatch them, for that would be even worse a treason than the one with which you are charged. I myself have even laid eggs, but it is generally supposed that such eggs would not hatch. I could hardly believe it. A nation of Amazons? I could not help continuing to regard them as males. But to go on with the alternative penalties, I have described the egg-laying. The other penalty, namely the Valley of the Howling Rocks, supplied a most diabolical form of punishment. This valley extends about a mile along the international boundary line, so that the pale stops at one end and begins at the other. Its sides are steep and unscalable, and into it are cast the worst criminals of both countries. Some undetermined natural cause within the valley sets up such a terrific din that the victims are driven crazy and perish because of the sound. 
I thought I should prefer any noise, however awful, to the alternative of having eggs laid in me. But Doggo assured me that the valley was by far the worst of the two. However, my wishes finally prevailed, and Doggo promised to try and secure the valley punishment, an event of a conviction. In due course, the time arrived for the trial, and I was led in chains to the Imperial City. Doggo accompanied me, and brought Tabby, too, to console me. For some reason, I could not get at all excited over the performance. It seemed so absurdly like the trial of Alice in Wonderland, as she is reported to have exclaimed, Why, you are nothing but a pack of cards! So I was often tempted to exclaim, Why, you are nothing but a nest of ants! As a matter of fact, I was much more interested in how my princess was getting on than I was in my own impending fate. On the day of the trial, I was led into the awful presence of Queen Formis. She stood nearly twice the size of any other Formian, and her dignity was enhanced by a raised platform surmounted by a scarlet canopy, which set off the perfect proportions of her jet-black body. Grouped on each side of her stood six ant-men, whose refined and intelligent appearance made even my professional friends at the University of Mooney look like common worker ants by comparison. Ant messengers hurried to and fro, doing the bidding of the Dread Thirteen, while several large, clumsy ants of a type which I had never seen before wandered aimlessly around the chamber. The royal husbands, Doggo informed me. So these were the drones of Formia. They were very stupid-looking fellows, who appeared to be accorded great privileges but no deference. My jailers led me to the foot of the throne, where, under instructions from Doggo, I made a low obeisance to the queen. Then I was locked into a wicker cage at one side, and the trial began. First, one of the council read the accusation, and then the witnesses were called, each being permitted to tell his story in his own way, and not being subjected to cross-examination by Doggo, though any member of the court could ask him questions. On the whole, the procedure seemed much fairer than a trial on earth, for the evident object here was to ascertain the whole truth, unhampered by rules of evidence, rather than to afford a sparring match between rival attorneys. The keeper of the Kirkwall at Watusa testified in substance as follows. The prisoner came at me unawares, overcame me, trussed me up in a corner, where it took me a path and a half to escape from my bonds. While I lay bound, Cabot stole Prince Yuri's car. I saw no one with Cabot, and in fact did not see Cabot take the car. But I judged that he took it, for later I found it gone. I object, I cried. Keep quiet, Doggo growled. No one else paid any attention to my interruption. The witness continued. Immediately upon getting loose, I notified the Winko. One of the Winko's attendants then took the stand and corroborated him in this. It was a well-framed-up story, and I had no inclination to get the keeper of the Kirkwall into trouble by disputing it. The traffic sentinel ant gave an exact and straightforward account of how he had stopped us and had trapped me into many damaging statements. Also, how I had tried to run him down with a Kirkwall, which was not exactly the truth, but doubtless it had seemed that way to him. Then he produced the forged pass, which was handed around and carefully inspected by the council. Several ant-men then testified as to their pursuit of us, including the wrecking of their own car by means of ours. They had tried to dig into the tunnel and had failed, so they killed the spider with a long pole. They had confidently expected to find us behind the umbrella. Never before having seen a double-ended spider cave, they had not scattered through the woods to cut off our retreat. Even so, they could not account for our escape, especially as they had kept the road from there to the border constantly patrolled by Kirkwalls from that time on until my arrest at the third gate. You see, 
I had slipped up by not realizing that I possessed the sense of hearing, which had enabled me to avoid the patrols. The Coopian sentinel at the third gate had claimed his official privilege of refusing to testify, but the ant sentinel quoted his Coopian colleague as saying that he had let the Princess Lilla pass through because he had no authority over members of the royal family, but had duly arrested me as required by law. No mention was made of Prince Yuri's presence at the gate to rescue her from me. I tried to get Doggo to object on the ground of hearsay, for this was the first and only attempt by the prosecution at identifying my companion in flight, and hence was the most damaging. But Doggo replied that hearsay testimony was perfectly allowable on Poros, unless one could impeach either the absent or the present witness. How much more sensible than the rule in America? Then I was called upon. Do I have to take the stand? I asked. No, answered Doggo. But if you don't, your silence will be used against you. Again, a more sensible rule than which prevails in America. Only all those forming improvements over American criminal practice were decidedly to my own disadvantage. I was just about to tell how Yuri had planned Lilla's rescue with me when something stayed me. I wish now that it had not, for to have told the truth at this time would have prevented a tragedy which later occurred. But my New England spirit of fair play deterred me, and I decided to settle with Yuri myself and personally. Though how I ever hoped to escape from the ants in order to do so, I did not stop to consider. So I spoke as follows. Everything testified so far as the truth. But I wish to ask your majesty in all respect, just what justification had formed you to detain the princess of Kupia as a slave? You should have treated her as a visiting royalty, and in that capacity she had a perfect right to command my assistance and I had a perfect right to obey. Let me tell the rulers of Formia that... But I got no further, for the queen thundered. Stop. I find the prisoner guilty by his own admission. Further evidence is superfluous, and I shall proceed to sentence. Has anyone any suggestions to make on this subject? Whereupon my old friend, the professor of anatomy, stepped forward. Doggo had evidently primed him to do me a good turn, for he said, The prisoner is neither a Kubian nor a Formian, nor is it apparent just what sort of animal he is. He seems to be a reasoning species, and so can be tried for a crime and accorded the same privileges of trial as in the case of a member of either of the two recognized reasoning species of the planet. But, as he is an unknown type of creature, it is extremely likely that his flesh would prove harmful to the royal babies. Accordingly, for the good of the Empire, I advise that your majesty impose the more severe of the alternative sentences, namely, the Valley of the Howling Rocks. As no one else present had any suggestion to make, Queen Formus and the council conferred together for a few moments, and then the sentence was announced. As I hoped, it was the valley. The professor had done well. Convicted criminals on Poros are not kept in suspense day after day as on earth. We started for the valley the very next morning, apparently. An execution is an important state occasion on this planet, for a long line of Kirkwools trailed out of the Imperial City, carrying the Queen, several of the Council, and some lesser dignitaries, as well as Doggo, Tabby, myself, and my guards. Doggo was deeply touched by grief, but for myself, I was still unable to get up any very great excitement over the affair. Perhaps I am a fatalist, but I could not believe that I was really going to die. It all seemed like a dream from which I was soon about to awake. And even if I should appear to die on this planet, was it not likely that I would awake on the Earth again, in my Boston laboratory, and thus put an end to a very interesting set of imaginary adventures? But at this thought a pang stabbed my heart. 
I resolved that. I had rather actually die than have it turn out that my meeting with the Princess Lilith had not been a fact. The authorities permitted me to write her a note of farewell, and Doggo guaranteed to deliver it personally, thus assuring that it would get past Yuri. Into this letter, I crowded all of my pent-up love, and urged her to feel no regrets at my having been sacrificed in her behalf, as that sacrifice was gladly and happily given. Then I patted my little pet Tabby farewell, turned her over to Doggo's care, and was led by my executioners to the edge of the abyss. It was a harmless enough looking gulch, but the scores of human skeletons and ant shells scattered about at the bottom bore a mute witness to its dread possibilities. And witness, not mute, was borne by the volume of noise which rolled up over the edge of the valley. I had thought that I had heard the limit of stupendous sound when years ago I stood at the brink of the Niagara, but the roar which arose from the valley of the Howling Rocks dwarfed even Niagara by comparison, and into this chaos infernal I was about to be lowered. It was, of course, impossible to hear spoken farewells, so I patted the side of Doggo's head goodbye, at which last demonstration he turned away brokenhearted. But the others seemed to be thoroughly enjoying the spectacle. Then my shackles were removed so as to give free play to my amusing antics during the torture, a strong rope was placed under my arms, and I was lowered into the pit. Even as I passed over the edge, my thoughts consisted chiefly in wondering, not what fate was in store for me, but rather, what it was that made the noise. Always I shall remain an inquisitive scientist, I suppose. The noise became unbearable. Looking upward as the rope spun me around, I saw the horrid face of the ant queen, leering over the edge. She lifted up a paw. To my surprise, the formians who held the ropes began to raise me again. A reprieve? Life again on the planet Poros, with a possible chance of seeing my princess once more? No. Merely a respite. Or rather, a cat-and-mouse game, which they were playing with me. Several more times I was lowered into the pit, was held there until I could scarcely bear the noise, and then was hauled up again for a brief breathing space. But finally, my feet were permitted to touch the bottom, and the rope was pulled up from beneath my arms. That awful noise... I cannot describe the agony of it. Madly, I dashed back and forth, trying to avoid it, but there was no escape. Lilla! Lilla! I shrieked in agony. But the terrific din kept even me from hearing my own words. I stumbled on a boulder, and falling, struck my head against a sharp rock. Then, blessed oblivion. End of chapter 10 This is a recording by M. Bradley Peters